0: How many of you, when you found out we were talking about depression, it made you sad? A little melancholy? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, there is no question that depression is a serious topic, isn't it? In fact, even just recently in the news, two celebrities recently committed suicide. Maybe you saw this, maybe you read it, maybe you heard about it. Fashion mogul Kate Spade and celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain. Depression was suggested as a possible reason why they killed themselves. And it doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, these are people who seemingly are at the top of their game. They've got it all fame and fortune. I mean, think about Robin Williams. I mean, when I heard Robin Williams committed suicide, I was sad. And I remember listening to his voice in Aladdin. And you think, "How can a guy who's so funny be so sad?" But we talk to their friends, or we hear from family, and we find out that beneath all of the success and the humor is darkness and pain and suffering. And to make it worse, current statistics say it's only getting worse. I mean, you realize that, right? Surveys of medicine suggest that depression is on the rise. In fact, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, depression is one of the most common mental disorders in the U.S. More people are being diagnosed by their doctors and their psychiatrists and their psychologists as depressed in fact, an estimated 16.2 million adults in the U.S. had at least one major depressive episode. 6.7% of all U.S. adults. It's even higher in the world. 2016, they estimated at about 10 million. So in the last two years, 6 million more people got diagnosed with depression. And that's only the ones they know about. Those aged 18 to 25 had a higher Rate of depression. Does that surprise you? Our younger generation is depressed. And this is kind of startling by some estimates, over 25% of the U.S. population will carry the label of depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder at any given time. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Richard, sorry, you're depressed. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Jerry, sorry. Bipolar. You're fine. You're fine. Lauren, sorry. Anxiety. I mean, think about that one in four. Sadly, these are not simply statistics that we're talking about, are they? In fact, I'm curious how many of you in this room, just by a show of hands, either have at some point in your life personally experienced some form of depression. Or, and here's the safety, you're like, this is making me uncomfortable. I'm getting depressed, just thinking about it. Or you personally know someone who was depressed. How many of you, I'm raising my hand, how many of you know or have experienced? Yeah. I mean, that's almost all of us. Sometimes just being married to me, Shelley, has had depression. And you're like, yeah, we know. The reality is most of us have been touched by depression in some form or fashion. For some of us, it's led to minor complications. You know, I realized that when I was in Albania as a missionary trying to learn that language and living in that culture, I had a mild form of depression. I I don't think I realized it until after I came back off the mission field. The darkness over there and the challenges and the struggles... Some of us have had major complications because of depression. There are are people who almost stop functioning because of depression. And maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you've experienced that. And still others, for them, it is a life-ending experience, sadly. Well, it's important for you to hear me say this loudly and boldly. Through God and His Word, there is hope and help for the depressed. Did you hear that? Through God and His Word, there is hope, there is help for the depressed. And maybe for one of you here tonight, you have been struggling secretly, nobody knows, and I'm talking to you. There's hope for you, and there's help through God through the gospel, and through submission to him and his way. It's incredibly comforting in the midst of what we see on the news and the statistics. Well, we started this series talking about the doctrine of spiritual growth two weeks ago. And what we did was establish a foundation we laid the foundation for this series. If you are a Christian, God has not only called, but he has equipped you for spiritual growth, what we call progressive sanctification, to change. You, that what that means is, if you are a Christian and you are struggling with some of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight and the weeks to come, you can change with God's help. Last week, Mike built on that foundation by talking about this broad category, what we call life-dominating sins. Sometimes the world calls them what? What's the word? Say it, Jasmine. I can see you mouthing it. Addictions. You know I'm going to call on you. You're like, well, fine. I'm not going to mouth it anymore. (laughs) Addictions. Life-dominating sins. That's what we call them. Talking about what they are and how to overcome them. Well, this week, we get a little bit narrower. And we're going to begin to talk about some of these specific issues and how to deal with some of life's greatest problems, greatest struggles. So tonight, I want to talk about depression. In fact, I have a slide for us tonight. There it is. We're going to deal with depression. And there are so many ways to cover depression. In fact, most of the time when depression is taught on, it's, it's two messages, so I'm going to try to do that in one message, by ending at 8 p.m., Lord Willing. So bear with me. I might have to talk fast. There is a lot to talk about. And in fact, the reality is, our pastors taught on depression. Last year, he taught through Psalm 42. I don't know if you remember that. I'd encourage you to download those messages and listen to them, because he's, he presents some material that I just didn't have time to fit into one message. Mike, I think you've taught on depression. Fred Sabins taught on depression when he was here. So we have a number of messages and resources for you. Tonight, I want to focus really on two things. I want to understand how does the world understand and view depression? And you think, well, Chris, why are we going to spend so much time talking about that? Because for that very reason, most of the messages I hear on depression, we we don't talk about what the world calls it and how they understand it. And I don't know if you realize this, but most of the people that come in to our counseling ministry that might be struggling with depression, most of them have been to the world. They've gotten help from the world. They're on medication. Some of them have have tried the medical treatments that the world has to offer. And so I thought it'd probably be helpful for us to talk a little bit about that, to understand what it is. And then we'll close. The second thing is then to understand how to understand it biblically. So, I can't cover it all. If you have questions that I don't answer, please come and see me afterwards. I'd be happy to answer those questions for you. And the really, really challenging ones, just go directly to Mike, because that's what I'm going to do anyway. Just go talk to Mike. He's the smart one between the two of us. So let's look at this first point. What is the the medical model's perspective on depression? Why am I calling it the medical model? It's just simply the, the secular view, what psychiatrists, what psychologists how they would define it. So we're gonna look at this perspective from, a clinical, from clinical psychiatry. Now, psychiatry is important. Do you know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Psychiatrist is an MD. They went to med school. They're able to give prescriptions. So typically, they're not only focused on the science of mind and how we think and sociology like behavior, but they want to know how the body is interacting with all of that. Whereas psychologists, they can't give you prescriptions, but you know, that's the typical thing in the, the movies. You go and you lay down on their couch and they talk to you, about, you talk to them about their problems. That's typically what we think of psychologists. And so we're looking at this from the perspective of clinical psychiatry. So we're going to be looking at also as how they understand how it affects the body as well. Let me give you a definition. And again, if you've got your hand out there, hopefully this outline is on there. This is a definition from the National Institute of Mental Health. Depression is a common but serious mood disorder. It causes severe symptoms that affect how you feel, how you think, and handle daily activities such as sleeping, eating, and working. So the NIMH labels depression as an illness Caused by a combination, and get this, here's the four things that they link this to. Caused by, uh, it's a combination of genetic, biological, environmental, and psychological factors. Four things. So the best minds in our secular community, our medical community, this is what they have determined is the cause of depression, a combination of these things. Let me just point out a couple interesting things about their definition. Number one, what is a disorder? What are they calling it? It's an illness. It's an illness. It's a disease. It's a sickness. There's something wrong with you. That implies what? There's an organic cause that's important. Also, notice they're saying it's not just one, but it could be a combination So when they're talking about genetic factors, what do they mean by that? Genetic factor is chromosome, it's DNA. Uh, Sometimes it's hereditary. In fact, I started reading it and researching it, and pretty soon it was like way over my head, all the different genetic things. But they're saying depression can come from a gene, just like secular scientists are trying to prove what else comes from a gene. What else? Homosexuality. They're trying to find the homosexuality gene, and what else? Alcoholism. You are a drunk because of your DNA. Gambling. There's a couple other ones that they're still still trying to find these. So it's genetic. What do they mean by biological? When When they're talking about biological, just think of chemistry. Chemistry in the brain, chemistry in the body, How your body processes those chemicals and hormones and how it affects your mood. They're talking about environment. Environment are those things on the outside of us. It could be I'm in a relationship with someone who's abusive. There's an environmental factor, something outside of me that is affecting how I feel. That's what they mean by, and there's a whole bunch of things that's in that environmental category. And then they're talking about psychological factors. Anything having to do with the mind and the way you think and the way you're wired. Now, it's interesting. If you go online, most websites, most articles, if you go to the bookstore and you research this, it states things like this. Researchers are trying to find genes that may be involved in causing depression. Two key words. What are they? Maybe. Implying what? Have they found it yet? No. They're still looking, and you know what? Who am I to say they won't find it? How do we know they won't? I don't know. Do we fully understand the body? Do we fully understand genetics and DNA? And no, we don't. But until they do find it, we're left with what we know, and so we have to be careful when we're interacting with the world. A lot of what they're stating as fact is really hypothesis. It's a theory. It's important for us to know that. In fact, uh, mayoclinic.org, they admit that they don't know the cause. They don't know. They don't know if it's genetics. They don't know if it's biology. It could be a combination of any of those things. So they note that depression can occur with other serious medical illnesses, like diabetes or cancer or heart disease or Parkinson's disease. And this is interesting, many of the medications that we are being given to treat those Illnesses totally unrelated to depression. Here's the statistic. Are you ready? One third of all of the, the prescriptions that you are given for your diabetes and your heart medicine, guess what a, a side effect is? Depression. We're depressing people, trying to cure something unrelated to depression, and we're actually making them depressed. It's amazing when you start doing the research, just thinking about the side effects. So that's a definition. Let's look at the signs and symptoms. Now, I got these signs and symptoms right out of the DSM-5. The DSM-5 is the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Why is it 5? Well, because every couple years they do a revision. Uh, So, for example, in one of the old ones, I think it was the DSM-3, homosexuality was labeled as a disorder. It was a sickness now what does the DSM-5 call homosexuality? It's no longer a sickness, I can tell you that. In fact, it used to be that transgenderism in the DSM-4 was an illness, a medical condition. Now transgenderism is a lifestyle. In fact, they've, they've relabeled it to gender dysphoria. So again, there's lots of interesting things in the DSM-5. So let me just work through these nine just really quickly. These are the signs and symptoms. The world and the psychologists and psychiatrists use these symptoms to determine if you and I are depressed. Are you ready? Some of your wives are like, See, I knew you were depressed. Number one, depressed mood. They feel sad. They're empty. They're hopeless. They're tearful. They're irritable. Number two, they're markedly diminished interest in pleasure or daily activities. There's apathy, they just don't even want to leave the house. Number three, there's significant weight loss or gain or appetite increased or decrease. That touches a little close to home. There's in, Are you laughing at me? This, it's the sideways? Uh, yeah, Chris, we can tell. Number four, insomnia or hypersomnia. Insomnia is what? Can't sleep. Hyper ins, hypersomnia is what? You sleep 23 hours a day. I think my teenagers have that. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. Psychomotor agitation. I looked this one up. This is a fun one. You can't sit still. There's racing thoughts. You can't relieve tension. There's no comfortable position. It's like no matter where you sit and how you sit, you're uncomfortable. Increasing anxiety. You bite your lip or your cheek. You're constantly tapping, tapping your foot. You're like my spouse has that. Ringing of the hands. Pacing. And then retardation is the opposite. All of that just slows down. The next one is fatigue or loss of energy. Having four kids gave that to me. Right? Five kids, right? We were talking about that. How about feelings of worthlessness? The next one. Or excessive or inappropriate guilt? Feelings of worthlessness. How about this one? Diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness. And then the last one is the reoccurrent thoughts of death. And by this, they mean either you've thought about it without a plan or you actually attempted it with a plan but were unsuccessful. Those first eight need to be happening, and now we're getting into the medical diagnosis, the first eight need to be happening just about every day for a period of two weeks. And how they diagnose you is you come into their office and you sit down and they start asking you a whole bunch of questions that are designed to kind of see how many of these you have. And by their diagnosis, if you have five or more of those nine and you've had them for at least a two-week period and it's caused a major life change in your life, then they label you, they give you a diagnosis, you have depression, and, it, and I had to cut this out of the message. There's all kinds of different ones. You know, like there's one for the seasons. You only get depressed in the winter. They call it seasonal affectatious depression or whatever the name of it is. There's postpartum. Have any women in here felt like you had or had postpartum depression? Sadness or some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. <laughs> there's all kinds of different ones. People who are depressed will often use words like, I'm in pain there's darkness, there's numbness. And so the medical diagnosis, five of those nine for at least a two-week period. Now, I want to make some observations here because I want you to consider how depression is currently diagnosed in the DSM-5. You go to your doctor, you sit down, you start to describe something, and your doctor picks up, I think you're sad, I think you're depressed. And what they'll do is they will pull out, they're supposed to at least, pull out your psychiatrist, psychologist, even your MD. Sometimes they'll say, hey, I think you're depressed. You need to go see, and I'll recommend a psychiatrist or psychologist. Typically, they'll send you to a psychiatrist because what typically, as we're going to see in a moment, is, is the most used answer to depression. What do you think it is? How are they treating it? Drugs. So they probably won't send you to the psychologist. They'll send you straight to the psychiatrist. They're going to ask you questions, questions about how you feel, questions about your life. They're going to ask you questions about how you interact and what your struggles are and what you think about and what you do. And It's all about your feelings. It's very subjective. It's about your experience. Secondly, they will not ha- give you any kind of test. There's no MRI. There's no x-ray. And there's no lab work. You are being diagnosed with an illness based on how you feel and how you function or lack thereof. Think about that. You're saying, Chris, that's kind of harsh. There's no diagnostic test. The DSM-5 admits that. It says we have no diagnostic test to be able to prove this or not other than asking these questions. The very standard manual standard that they use says that. Now think about this for a moment. How do we typically diagnose an illness? If you think that someone in your family has strep throat, what do you do? Lock them in a room first. Clean everything, right? Because strep throat is very contagious. Come on, what's wrong with you guys? That's the first thing I would be thinking of. And then what do you do? Take them to the doctor. Why? Does the doctor say, how do you feel? Does your throat hurt? Subjectively, I mean, how does that make you feel when you think about the pain in your throat? Does it hurt a little bit? And then what do they do? They swab you, and what are they looking for? The cause of strep throat, which is what? Is it a virus? Wow, you said it. Say it louder. Strep, yes, thank you. I had a hard time saying it. I had it written down, but I wasn't going to try to say it because I would look like an idiot. You said it very well. They're looking for that strepto thing, the bacteria, and this culture will determine that through the lab work. And so based on the bacteria that they find in your body, that determines, yes, you have an organic cause that is creating symptoms. And why did you go to the doctor? For the cause or the symptoms? The symptoms, you went for the symptoms. I don't feel good. I'm hurting. I have fever. There's this gunk in the back, and I had these little red dots all over the inside. Am I going to die? That's me. I don't handle pain very well. So you go into the doctor, and they give you this test, and the results of the test are conclusive. You have strep throat. And then based on that diagnosis, diagnosis, what do they do? Here's a baby aspirin, half of a Flintstone vitamin call me in the morning. Is that what they do? No, how do you treat bacteria? You give it an antibiotic. Do you understand that's how the medical system works? There is a clear diagnostic test developed that links the cause to the symptoms. Now, understanding what scientific research is saying then and today about depression, this is important. In the 1950s, late, probably late 1950s, early 1960s, that's when a whole bunch of doctors got together and proposed a theory that an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain causes depression. And so by that, we hear this word what? Chemical imbalance. A chemical imbalance of serotonin. Serotonin is the neurotransmitter, and it fires and sends messages between nerve endings in your brain and what they suggested is that it is possible that depression is a result of a low level of serotonin in your brain therefore it's not firing properly and it affects the way you feel this was a huge shift in the medical community because what they started to say is what it's no longer stress or your environment what is it it's organically caused it's a what illness you're sick and that began a huge shift to find the right medicine to restore the imbalance of these neurotransmitters which they had labeled an organic illness it's interesting in 2004 this drug came out called cymbalta anyone remember cymbalta cymbalta i mean there's been a whole bunch of them they have to fda has to approve them they have to go through clinical tests and all of that Symbolta came out. It was the first time that a depression medicine actually used this this tagline. Depression, does anyone remember? Hurts. Depression hurts. And if you've ever been depressed, does it hurt? Yes. You feel physical pain. I mean, just think of some of the psalms that we have, maybe where King David is talking about his life, does he experience physical pain as a result of circumstances in his life? Yeah. It's like physical pain. Well, they capitalized on this. And, and I actually got on YouTube and looked at the, I found a copy of that commercial from 2004. It says, depression hurts. You have an illness. And if you take this drug, it will make you feel better. What are they selling Happiness, pain relief, absolutely. And that's exactly what Cymbalta did. In 2013, $9.4 billion just on antidepressants alone. That was 2013. Think about what it is now. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. And the more Google research I did on what's going on today, I, I was like, Do the pharmaceutical people own these people, these doctors, these surveys, these statistics? I wonder. Now, here's a question that typically comes up. Does the fact that some who take antidepressant medicine feel better prove the chemical imbalance theory? Think about that. This is what people say. The doctor told me I'm sick. I have an illness. Chemical imbalance. I took this drug... And after about six weeks to eight weeks, guess what happened? I started feeling better. Therefore, what's the conclusion? The drug cured or at least eased the symptoms of a legitimate medical condition. That's what people are saying. Now, when you take an aspirin, what does it do? You have a headache, and what does it do? This is not a trick question, I promise. It alleviates your headache. But headaches are not caused by a deficiency of aspirin, are they? I mean, think about that. Just because two concurrent events are happening doesn't mean that they're necessarily, that there's a cause and a link. Just like if I was to say, 100% of people that ate carrots in 1852 are dead. Carrots will kill you. True! Yeah, Sam's saying yes, ban the carrots. It helps your eyesight, Sam. Aspirin might suppress symptoms of my headache, but it isn't the cure, is it? No. Improvement because of medication does not prove the existence of an organic cause for depression. Because if antidepressants correct a chemical imbalance, shouldn't all or most get better? Think about that. If those antidepressants are correcting a chemical imbalance, then theoretically they should make us better. 2002, Irving Kirsch and his associates at the University of Connecticut gained data from the FDA. Think about this. Of all the clinical tests that had ever been submitted to the FDA, both published and unpublished, because of the, the, the Right to Freedom Act that came out, they finally got to get all of this from the government, from the FDA. And in this study they found that 82% of the drug response was duplicated by a placebo. You know what that means? I'm a drug company. I'm trying to test the efficacy of a drug to see if it really helps depressed people. We bring in people who are depressed. We put 10 of them over here, 10 of them over here. We got half a room of depressed people over here, half a room of depressed people over here. And these 10 people don't know, they all think I'm giving them the drug, but these 10 get the drug, and these 10 get a placebo pill, a pill filled with sugar or something, they have no idea what they're getting. And the results found that 82% of these people felt better, and guess what? 82% of these people felt better. What? This created so much pain and confusion and problems, like 60 Minutes did an episode on it, and all of a sudden all these people were trying to attack him and say, no, that's not true, because you know what his point was? Hope is just as effective as an antidepressant pill. Hope, think about what depressed people are struggling with, hopelessness. If I take this, it will what? Make me feel better and just the placebo had just as much of an impact as the ones who were actually taking an antibiotic, antibiotic or uh, excuse me antidepressant and think about that if somebody gives you a drug it does do something to you doesn't it if i give you cocaine what will it do i don't know i've never had it <laughs> that was a very honest answer kevin i'm glad we had this talk So when I worked for LAPD, I wanted to be a narcotics detective. I was fascinated by the drug world. That sounds weird now that I said that out loud. (laughs) But living in L.A., I I just grew up, and and it was a big issue. And so I wanted to be a narcotic. So I did all kind of testing and and training that I could when I was a cop because I wanted to be a narcotics detective. Uh, If you give someone marijuana or alcohol, it's a depressant. If you give them cocaine, it's a what? Central nervous... Stimulant. It does the exact opposite. If I give you a drug and it enters into your bloodstream, what will it do? I don't know if you've ever talked to someone on cocaine. Maybe not. Things you never thought you'd hear from the pulpit. But I remember talking to this one lady who I just watched her smoke a crack pipe. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this. I'm so sorry, but, but I didn't, what, what are you talking about? I know, you want to go over here? Okay, let's go talk over here. And, oh, no, what? What you? I, it was like you could not get her to stop moving or stop talking. Why? Because that chemical, when it entered in her body, it did what? Something. It affected her. If you give someone a drug, it's going to do something. And, and it's interesting. You talk to people who are on antidepressants. They go to their doctor, and what does the doctor typically say? We'll try this for six to eight weeks, and if it doesn't work, we'll increase it, decrease it. And then we'll try that. Okay, now we doubled it to the max. Now what we're going to do is we're going to try something else or a, a mixture. It's like, like what are you doing? It's like, this is like mixology with antidepressants? This is supposed to be a medical science. And it almost feels like they, they're just trying it out to see what combination works. In 2014, they redid the study because of all of the heat they were taking. They found the same findings. And as a result of this study and others like it, there are a few researchers today willing to step up and mount a full-scale defense of the chemical imbalance theory. The reality is I found quite a few that are willing to defend it. They're willing to say, no, this is science, this is true, this is helpful. What's the point? Well, for many, giving a depressed or suicidal person an antidepressant pill is like giving a pain pill to someone who's sitting on a tack. If you're sitting on a tack, how does that make you feel? I don't feel warm and fuzzy right now. You're like, ouch. And I'm like, oh, does that hurt? Yes. Well, here's a pain pill. It'll help you feel better. And they take it, and how does it make them feel? Better. Until it what? Wears off. What does the pain pill do? Mask the true cause. You're like, "Uh, you realize you got a tack in your hiney. Just pull that out, and I think that will solve the problem. Antidepressants only deal with symptoms, with our feelings, not the root problem. And the reality is the side effects of these antidepressants, sometimes they make it worse. When Shelly had her pain before she had the brain tumor taken out, they were giving her antidepressants at, at MD Anderson because some of those antidepressants also solve pain issues. And she got on online because she was feeling funny. The, they were giving her a low dose. She had this, what were those things called? Like brain sparks or buzzing? And yeah, it was crazy. I'm like, honey, are you okay? And she's like, another one just happened. There, it, it happened again. I'm like, are you okay? Should I call somebody? She's like, I want to get off these things. Sometimes the side effects of the very drug they're giving you to help you not be depressed, what's the symptom? It makes you more depressed. Hello? It's shocking to me. Well, I do want to stop for a moment and just tell you, it's important to note, depression can be caused organically. It can have physiological causes. It's not just chemical imbalance. There are legitimate reasons why someone would be feeling depressed. For example, metabolic or endocrine disease. Things like Graves' disease. I had a friend whose wife had this where the the thyroid was overproducing thyroid hormone. Things like that. Adrenal gland issues, Addison's disease, or lack of some kind of hormone. Also neurological diseases. Things like Alzheimer's and Huntington's disease and MS and Parkinson's and brain tumors Those can cause depression. Infections like HIV and TB, mono even, vitamin deficiency, certain medications that we might take. For something else, I already talked about that. You know, even sleep deprivation can cause depression. And so if you have something, that's why when people come in and they're like, I'm depressed, first thing I do is, when did you last go see your doctor? Because it's possible that you are feeling some of those symptoms of depression because you have a legitimate, organic Cause, there's something wrong with your body. Go to your doctor, get checked out, and get help. And we encourage them to do that. Well, what are the medical treatment and therapies? I'm going to go over these really quickly. Medication, this is typically tried first. Antidepressants like Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, Cymbalta, Lexapro, Colexa, and Livox. I just want you to know something. As a pastor and a counselor, I don't ever tell someone to stop taking medication that's been prescribed to them by a doctor, by a psychologist, by a psychiatrist, and I would encourage you to do the same thing. If you're not a doctor and you didn't prescribe that, don't tell them to stop taking it. Did you hear that? Don't do it. And at the same time, if you have someone going, hey, I'm trying to decide if I should or shouldn't, don't you be the one to say, oh yeah, you should. Send them to their doctor. You're not an MD, neither am I, unless you are an MD and then you're in a different class. Medication is often tried first. Psychotherapy is the second. There's different forms. There's talk therapy. You know what talk therapy is? Counseling. You just go talk to someone about what's going on. But there's also forms of cognitive behavior therapy. I love this in the psychological word. They always come up with these big, fancy names. Kind of like we do in seminary, actually. I, I can appreciate this. You sound smart. Cognitive restructuring, they call it. What does that mean, cognitive restructuring? Cognitive restructuring. Change the way you think. That's all they're, they're saying. How to deal with unhelpful thinking patterns or problem solving. Uh, included in this is meditation, skills training. They do role play activity to teach you how to respond more appropriately in certain situations and activity scheduling. So there's a whole bunch of things that are in that psychotherapy more than I could talk about. And then the last one is electroconvulsive therapy, ECT where they literally stimulate the brain with electricity. They do general anesthesia, trying to stimulate the brain to produce chemicals that they believe will put the brain back into balance. Typically, that's a last result. It's being done today. You're like, we still shock people? Yes. It's being practiced today. So that's just a short overview. The question is, can we trust the medical model's explanation for the cause and cure of depression? Well, you need to come to your own conclusion. I know I have. The simple answer I have is no. Based on all the research I've done, my understanding of Scripture, the answer is, for me, no. And this may shock you to hear me say this, but in some ways I almost hope they can prove some of this stuff. It would make sense. If they could prove that there's a chemical imbalance someday, which they might be able to, who knows? Who knows? In some ways, it would almost make sense. I'm in a counseling room listening to people talk about their depression and their sadness and their darkness, and it's like, wow, I hurt with you. Sometimes I'm listening to it, and I'm literally praying, God, I don't even know where to start. But for now, it's important for us to know what they're saying and to use caution. For those of you who want to study it more, this just came out. Dr. Charles Hodge is a biblical counselor, it's part of our organization, the, the, the one that I got certified in, and he wrote this book, Good Mood, Bad Mood, Help and Hope for Depression and Bipolar Disorder. Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, he's got great, and again, it's written from an MD's perspective, but Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 just talk about all of this from a doctor's perspective in a much more medical-explained way, so for those of you who are interested, I just encourage you to get that resource just for those two chapters alone. It was really helpful for me. Uh, Secondly, I, I want to just make sure that we have a balanced view. I have talked to people in the church who have basically said, anyone who takes medication is sin, is in sin. If you're on medication, you're in sin. I don't believe that. I think we need to have a balanced view and a balanced understanding. I'm not going to begrudge a person who finds relief in medication. Never have I believed that more than when my wife got a brain tumor that got taken out and for the last two and a half years, she's had chronic pain. Now, is medication her savior? No. And should it be yours? No. Is it the idol of her heart? No. And should it be your idol of your heart? No. Does antidepressant medicine take care of the cause? No. In fact, I've had counseling situations where someone was so emotionally distraught, so upset, that they could not sit in the chair to talk me through what was wrong. How do you help someone like that? Do you lock them in a padded room and say, hey, Jesus loves you, and so do I. Call me when you're ready to talk. Think about that. What do you do for that person? And so their psychiatrist gave them medicine to help calm them down. And In fact, they said it just numbed my emotions. Sometimes people on antidepressants, that's what they describe. It numbed me from the inside out. And it numbed them enough so that I could sit down and do what? Give them the hope of Scripture and give them the hope of the Word. And even through those counseling sessions, my goal was not, I'm going to get you off this drug as quickly as I can. My goal was what? To tell them about Christ. And to show them the word of God. To let them come to their own conviction that that is not ultimately what you need. Especially for those that had non-organic functional depression. You know what I mean by that? Non-organic. It's not caused by one of those diseases. It's non-organic. They've been told it's a chemical imbalance. They've been told it's genetic. They've been told it's something else. Or maybe an environmental issue. So I think we need to have a balanced view. There's more I could say about that. Come talk to me afterwards. If I offended you, I'm sorry. The medical model, model, and just in summary, says this depression is an illness. It's not your fault. And therefore, if it's not your fault, it's not your choice. Did you get that? This is important. They're saying it's either nature or nurture. Nature or nurture. If you just want to summarize, they're saying nature or nurture. Nature is genetics and biology and, and, and psychology, the way the brain works, everything related to the nature. What's nurture? It's your environment. It's the person who was abused when they were five. It's the person who lost their wife two weeks ago and is still struggling to deal with the sadness and the grief. It's something from outside of them. It's nurture or nature. Now the world says it's a long-term incurable. Did you get that? Secular science says depression is Incurable it's chronic illness that has only a 60 to 70% probability of lessening symptoms with treatment that's what the current statistics say if you have depression by the world standards and you go into a secular doctor and they start giving you treatment of one of those or three or a combo of those things you have a 60 to 70% chance again not of being cured they're saying it's incurable but at least they will lessen your symptoms so that you will be functional Now you tell me. Does that sound hopeful? Does it? Just Google. (laughs) Do antidepressants work? You will be shocked at the stories of horror that people are sharing as a result of those things. Well, I need to move on. Took up way too much time on that. Let's get to the biblical perspective on depression. Two important observations here. The most important principle to remember is that the goal must not be alleviation of depression. It, may, it must not be the relief of symptoms. But rather, what is the goal? If I'm counseling someone who is depressed, my main goal is to help you understand that the most significant decision you can make today is I choose to please God. Second Corinthians 5.9. We make it our ambition, whether home or absent, to what? Be pleasing to him. Why must that be the goal? That's exactly the opposite of the world. They're saying, we're going to take care of your symptoms. You come to a biblical counselor, we're going to say, now th- we're going to get to that, but the most important thing is, are you going to please God or not? Because that speaks to what? Motive. Every bit of counsel I give you from this point on is founded upon your desire to give God glory and please Him in what you're doing. And how do we know if we please God? Because we do it according to His word. Secondly, remember that the world views depression through a person's feelings and experience. So if we feel well, we respond well. If we feel bad, we respond what? Bad. Badly. So the remedy, therefore, is focused on how we feel. And the Bible gives us a very different perspective on the classification, the causes, and the cure. So let's look at the classification There's no single biblical term which covers all the signs and symptoms that we've covered so far. In fact, the closest that we have in the Bible is translated downcast in the NIV. The NASB, it'll say, your countenance fell. turns me to Genesis 4, right in the beginning. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 4 this, this evening. But Genesis 4, notice in Genesis 4, 6, It says, but for Cain in the offering he had no regard, so Cain became very angry, and his, what? Countenance Countenance fell, or he was downcast, if you have the NIV. His countenance fell. In fact, uh, turn over to, you can keep your finger in, in Genesis 4 if you want. It's not hard to find, it's in the beginning. Psalm 42, verse 5 I could have spent a whole sermon on this, but since our pastor took two sermons on Psalm 42 just a year ago, I'm just going to merely reference it once here and let you listen to those great messages that our pastor taught. Psalm 42, starting in verse 5, it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence Verse 6, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hernan, from Mount Mazar. Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. It's interesting, whenever you're, you're seeing that, that darkness, that disturbed It literally has the idea of sunk down. They translate it out of the Hebrew into something that makes more sense grammatically for us. But that's literally what what those words are talking about. You're sinking down. Whereas Genesis 4, the Hebrew, literally means face fell. So God's talking to Cain. He gets angry and what happens? Have you ever seen someone's countenance fall? They go, or they go, And here in Psalm, it's, it's melting. In fact, Psalm 44, verse 25 says, For our soul has sunk down into the dust. It's the same word from Psalm 44. And it literally has the idea of melting away. Our soul has sunk down in the dust. My soul is melting within me. And in 2 Corinthians 7 6, you don't have to turn there, but it says, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. How does God comfort the depressed? Well, that Greek word depressed is translated humble in some cases. In fact, Jesus in Matthew says, I am humble of heart. It's the same word. And over in James 1, 9, James uses the same word and it's translated lowly, talking about a person's low or humble place in society. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, it's translated depressed, just talking about a low or humble heart, a depressed heart. So how do we define it biblically? Well, I'm going to give you this. I think I have this on your your handout. That debilitating mood, feeling, or air of hopelessness, which becomes a person's reason for not handling the most important issues of life and causes them to stop functioning. Notice we're not calling it an illness. We're not calling it a disorder. A biblical definition is talking about I feel this way, this, this mood, this feeling, this air of hopelessness. And as a result of the way I feel, I don't do what I know I should do. And so that makes me stop functioning. It's radically different from the definition I gave you from the National Institute of Mental Health. It's a non-organic. Feelings are emphasized in what? Hope. You're going to see this theme throughout the scriptures. I wish I had time to take you to all the passages. Do a study on hope. Hope. Now even if someone has depression from a medical condition, they've been given a diagnosis, a legitimate diagnosis, they did the diagnostic test, you have this disease, you have Graves disease, you have diabetes, you have this, you have that. Guess what? They still have to learn to live in light of that medical condition, right? So they may be experiencing depression from an organic cause, but they still have to learn how to respond biblically to that. Well, that's the classification. Look at the, look at the cause. And again, there are so many ways I could have walked us through this. We could have gone to Elijah in First Kings 19. We could have gone to Jonah 4. We could have looked at David and Saul. We could have gone to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. There's so many ways that we could have examined this biblically, but I just want to walk us through Genesis 4. It's one of the clearest examples, I think, of the cycle of Depression. And notice the downward spiral. In fact, I have a PowerPoint just to kind of illustrate this for us. And I have the chart there on the back of your handout. Let me read Genesis 4, 3 to 10, and then we'll walk through it. Genesis 4, verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. His face fell. He became depressed. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And notice what God says. What have you done? done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Wow. Notice the progression that we have. Abel obeyed God by giving a sacrifice according to what God must have revealed. Now, does anywhere in the account of Genesis 4, does it tell us that God explained to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel how to do offerings in the proper way and the proper methodology? Is that anywhere in the text? No. I'm going to walk you through some reasons why we believe God must have explained to Cain and Abel what the sacrifice was, how to please the Lord, how to do it. And so even Hebrews eleven four by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Cain and Abel come, they give the offering, then what happens? Cain doesn't obey in Genesis 4.3. So how does God respond to that? And again, think of this, he's making decisions based on how he feels, experiencing consequences of those feelings, and cycling down through this circle. He didn't obey, so what does God do in Genesis 4-5? He lovingly disciplines him. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance, or or this is where where he says, I I had disregard for your offering. You didn't do it right. That's what he says in in, does in in 4-5. So what happens? Cain gets angry. His countenance fell. What should he have done at this point? God didn't have regard for his offering. Cain, there's a problem between me and you. I told you how to do it, and you didn't do it. What should Cain have done? God, I'm sorry. Will you, what, forgive me? Did he do that? No. So God begins to ask him questions. Why does God ask him questions? To help him deal with what's going on in his heart, And so in verse 6, that's exactly what God does. In fact, he even says, if you obey, you're going to feel better. If you do well, it'll go well with you. Your countenance will be lifted. And then what happens? How does Cain respond to that? He goes into the field and does what? Murders. And you see him cycling down into this spiral of depression. And it's not just sadness because it has an effect. Now his sadness is, and this anger is coming out, and it's become what? Murder. And then what happens? God asks more questions. What is God doing? Trying to help him, trying to help him cycle up out of this. And what does he do? He's evasive. He's sarcastic. So what does God do? God uncovers his sin. He curses him. And punishes him. And then what happens? Look at verses 13 to 14. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. What does that mean? God, I am overwhelmed. Verse 14, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Because of the curse that God gives in between there. And so what happens? This only further increases his depression. It's amazing when you see it like that. I just want to notice three important things, three important elements from this text. First of all, the feeling that results from how a person handles situations. What should Cain have done? He knew the right offering and what did he do? He did something else, something he wanted to do. And God said, I'm going to have no regard for that. You didn't do it the way I told you. How did that make him feel? Angry. Did God make him angry? Was that God's fault? Was that Abel's fault for doing what God said and giving a better sacrifice? No, whose fault was that? Cain. Secondly, they allow their feeling to determine how they respond in action. Because he's angry, what does he do? go and try to make it right, fix it, own it, confess it, forsake it, know what? He gets even more angry, and that leads to murder. And third, the consequences of their actions only create positive, good feelings or worse feelings. In this case, worse. I just want you to see in summary form, there is a relationship between the heart attitude, the actions, and the resulting feelings. Attitude drives our actions, which in turn results in consequences that either make us feel good or make us feel bad. So what do we learn from this story? Well, there's a progression. Depression can develop when you have a strong desire that rules your heart. We would call this a hope, a demand, a craving, a felt need, also known as a ruling desire. Something is ruling your heart. There's a desire In fact, it may even start out as a good desire. Think about this. A husband desires respect from his wife. Is that wrong for a husband? No. In fact, the word of God commands her to respect her husband. Maybe a person desires healing from cancer. Maybe a woman wants to find a husband. She's been single and she's looking and looking and she can't find a husband. Maybe a teen wants good grades. Is there anything wrong with that? No. What was Cain's ruling desire? Think about it. What did he want? What was the trigger God didn't accept his sacrifice. Implying what? What did he want? For his sacrifice to be accepted. Just like Abel's. Maybe he wanted respect. Maybe he he wanted to present his offering his way. What do we call that? My way, my offering, pride. The only way we know for sure is to ask him, Cain, why did you do that? It's a good thing to remember. Secondly, your ruling desire is maybe disappointed or you come to believe it will be disappointed, leading to what we would refer to as hopelessness. It didn't happen. What I wanted didn't happen or I'm I'm sure it's not gonna happen. How do we know what Cain's ruling desire was? Well, because sinful anger came out when he didn't get what he wanted. What does Matthew Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20 say? Jesus says, from out of the heart, Come the words out of our mouth. From the heart come evil thoughts, evil words, and evil deeds. It's coming from inside. And what motivated this? It was pride. It was a desire to receive reward and acknowledgement his way, not God's way. Now, some of you are saying, man, that's unfair. Maybe Cain didn't even know the proper way to offer a sacrifice to God. Well, in verse 3, when it says, so it came about in the course of time... If you look up that word in the Hebrew, it has the idea of at the appropriate day, implying that that more than likely, and again, this is a grammatical clue, we believe that means that God did instruct Adam and Eve and did instruct Cain and Abel so that they knew at the appropriate time, sacrifices would begin. When did the first sacrifice happen? Think about this. We're a Bible church. When did it happen? Yeah. To cover the shame and guilt of the very first sin, what did God do? Killed an animal. And what was that foreshadowing? Blood needed to be shed for sin. You need to confess it. You need to own it. And so we... Theologians and Bible scholars believe that this is even coming out of that, that he then said, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, you are going to worship God through sacrifice. Why? To remind you that sin has a high cost. So when you come, don't bring your fruits and veggies and your flower pots, all the beautiful things. Blood must be spilt. Abel did it. What did Cain do? I want to show off my wares. I want to do it my way. So, what does the wife do? She continues to criticize the husband. The husband gets no respect. Maybe the cancer won't go away. That person is beginning to wonder is it ever going to go away? The radiation, the therapy, the immunotherapy, none of it's working. Is there hope? And they begin to lose hope. The woman continues to date, finding only losers. She, emo, she even goes to farmersonly.com. This is Texas. I just want to find a husband. That teen gets all A's and one B+. Plus. Anyone have a parent like a teacher a, a student like this? That one B+. Plus, what does it do? Ah, they're weeping for days. Their SAT score was poor. When their ruling desire is disappointed or they don't believe it will become true. So we go from this ruling desire to this ruling desire of being disappointed to thirdly, depression may express itself in various ways with various related components. God doesn't simply walk away from Cain. He doesn't simply punish Cain. What does he do? With patience and, and gentleness, he begins asking questions to counsel him. It's a great reminder for us. Patience and grace, he tries to reason with him. Cain didn't have to be angry. Whose fault was it that he was angry? His Can anger affect brain chemistry? Yes. Not chemical imbalance. Sin can cause a physiological change resulting in mood change. And Cain could have chosen to respond God's way, but as we see throughout the story, he doesn't feel like it. And in pride, he chooses depression. Do you get that? What came out of his anger? Broken relationship with God, making him feel sad. His countenance falls. Cain, by choosing his way over God's way, a better way, a right way, chose depression. Cain couldn't blame others. And this is the danger with the medical model. The the medical model is saying, you didn't choose depression. This isn't your fault. And the Word of God says, no, we choose depression when we choose to go against God's way. Now, obviously, unless you have an organic cause, sometimes those things happen It's not your fault. What if you have cystic fibrosis? That's one of the the diseases that is genetic. You get a gene from your mom and a gene from your dad, boom, you have cystic fibrosis. What about the young woman who is sexually abused? Did she ask for it? No. Chris, you're going to sit here and tell me that's her fault? No, I'm not. And I will never excuse the sin. That is wrong. And that person needs to be punished. Romans 13 says the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. But just because they got a genetic disorder or they were victimized, does that give them the right to be depressed? Now, that's, you're like, I don't know if I like the way you said that. Are they able to be sad? If you were sexually abused, would that make you happy or sad? Please, don't hear me saying you can't be sad. If your child just got killed in a car accident. If your wife just lost another baby. In fact, what does Ecclesiastes 3 say? There's a time for weeping and a time for what? Laughter. And I think it's wrong when we put this idea that you can't be sad. And that may, it may look like depression because you're broken over the consequences of sin. If it's a, if it's a medical issue, what is that? It comes from the fall, from Genesis 3. If, it, if it's someone victimizing you or a drunk driver killing somebody, what is that? Well, it's still coming from Genesis 3 because we live in a sin-filled world with sin, sinner just like you and me. And sometimes they're going to hurt each other. So I think it's appropriate for us to have a season of sadness. The question is, well, how long? I don't know. I'm not God. All I can do is be a good listener, to give hope, to encourage them, to comfort them, to ask good questions, to just weep with them when they need to weep, and to encourage them. There will come a day when God will restore your joy and your hope. Are you trusting in that? Are you trusting in the Lord through this? I want to walk with you. And I think sometimes in our Bible-thumping society, we're like, no, the Bible says you shouldn't be sad. Really? Now, can that sadness become an idol of the heart? Yes. So we have to watch out for that. Their pity, their sorrow, where the focus of their view comes off of God and what he's doing through this, and it's solely fixed on whom? Themselves. And probably in the beginning, it's going to be on their loss and their loss. But over time, God, who is the great physician, will heal them. And I think sometimes we can use the laments, Psalm 6, Psalm 13, Psalm 32 and 38 and 51, because these laments, you have the Old Testament psalm writers lamenting. They're they're articulating the experience of depressed people, but they're also uh, would teach people how to help them shape and teach godly interpretations of their experience. Through these, through these laments. And so God doesn't leave Cain without hope because in verse 7, he reminds him if you continue to disobey me, what's crouching at the door? Sin. Cain, you master it or it will master you. Sin is there. It's almost as if God knew what was going to happen. You're like, is he serious? Did God know what was going to happen? Yes, he did. He knows the future, the past, present, and the future. And what is he doing? He's warning. He's loving him, going, if you continue down this path, if you allow sin into your heart and mind, and if you respond based on how you feel rather than what I'm telling you to do, guess what? It's going to go from bad to what? Worse. And sometimes when we interact with depressed people who are on a path other than God's, guess what? It goes from bad to worse. And part of the solution is calling them back to God's path, God's way. And that's what we must do. So what was Cain's response? Well, it's the natural end result of all unrepentant anger and hate. We murder with our mind, we murder with our words, or we murder with our fists. All you have to do is look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. If you call your brother Raka, it's the same thing. Getting angry with him in your heart, it's the same thing as what? Murdering him in your heart. It's the opposite of love, and so here Can uses his actions to get what he wanted. He couldn't kill God, who he was truly angry at, so what does he do? He kills his brother, the one that God accepted. The one that was rejected rises up and kills him. In like first John three twelve states, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So even John recognizes that's why he killed him. His brothers was righteous and he was what? Unrighteous. And he hated it. And you can't kill God, but you can kill the righteous one. Proud attitude in the heart led to a disobedience and sacrifice, which led to God's discipline, which led to anger and bad feelings, resulting in more sinful response and murder, resulting in even more despondency, and the downward spiral continues into the abyss of depression. And so the husband, what does he do? He begins an emotional affair with a co-worker at work. Well, if my wife's not going to give it to me, I'm going to find it over here. It's an emotional affair. We haven't done anything yet. And how does he feel? Guilty, despondent, there's deception, maybe not in the beginning, in the beginning it's exciting, but then what does it become? He's deceiving, there's stress, maybe there's insomnia, maybe there's medical complications, more sin, more bad feeling, and what happens? He's going down the drain in this cycle, or sorry, it starts little and goes big, sorry, don't know my own visuals. What about the person with cancer? They begin focusing only on healing, resulting in a very self-focused attitude. They begin to cut themselves off. They begin to feel self pity. All their money goes toward their healing. It all becomes about healing, getting rid of the cancer, which obviously you can't begrudge them. But when a desire to get rid of cancer becomes more important than a desire to please and love God, what do we call that? An idol of the heart. And is God going to bless that? Does God bless idolatry? No. How about the woman? She's run out of available Christians. She has a list, photo, ID, stats, everything. She's dated them all. They're all losers, including the farmers. So what does she do? She begins to date whom? Unbelievers. Well, God didn't provide it here. I must find him somewhere else. Is that violating God's word? Yes. So the thing that rules her heart, she most desperately wants, she goes outside of God's commanded will and begins to pursue it out there. And what happens? She finds a guy who's beautiful, she finds a guy who's sensitive and kind. He doesn't love God or Jesus, but he loves her. And so she marries him. And what happens? Well, maybe you know someone that's in that situation. It doesn't always work out. In fact, often it leads to more complications. How about the teen who begins to cheat? Because if they don't get the right grades, they won't get into the right program at the right university. And if they don't get that, they won't have the right career. And if they don't have the right career, they won't have the right house, and they won't attract the right mate or spouse, and they won't get the right... You see where that goes? And so they begin to cheat, and what happens? They begin to feel guilty, or maybe God is choosing not to uncover it, and what do they do? They feel smug. And what happens? If they get caught, they feel bad, leading to more. And so then they turn to drinking, or they turn to sex, or they turn to something else because that didn't work out, so I'll find it over here. And they feel worse and worse and worse. And even worse, if they don't get caught, think about that, it's worse if they don't get caught, what are they learning how to do? Cheat to get what they want. And when they become an adult, married with three kids, what is that used to be teenager, now young adult, what have they learned? I'm not happy anymore, so I'm going to go find it somewhere else. And cheating on a test becomes just as easy to do in a marriage. And how does that make them feel? Happy for a moment until they experience the consequences. Well, what's the cure? This is pretty simple. You know this. It's repent. And again, uh, repent, deal with the root issues, look for idolatry, unbelief, control. The cure is also to believe. What does Proverbs 3, 4 to 5 say? Trust in the Lord with your heart when it's convenient, when it makes sense, when it falls into your plans. Is that what it says? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul. Wait, that's the love passage you're confusing us if you love God with all your heart mind body and soul what will you do trust him you will not lean on your own understanding but in all your ways you will acknowledge God God you are God you know all things I will lean on you I will depend on you I will not lean on what I think is best I will lean on what your word says and what does it promise he'll take away all your pain He'll cure you of your cancer. He'll find you a, a, a husband who is a Christian who is a farmer. Yay! Is that what it says? No. What does it say? He will make your path straight. It doesn't necessarily say that it's going to be free of trouble or difficulty. Or It just says he's going to guide you and he's going to lead you. Does the Bible promise that if we do it God's way, he's going to remove the pain and the suffering? I don't know if God will ever take away the chronic pain from my wife. We went and had an MRI done yesterday. The tumor is not grown back. Praise God. The tumor is not there. The doctor got it out. It's been two and a half years. He said we're out of that first wood. There's still a bigger wood. It could grow back, but we're out of that first wood. I guess there's a second wood behind that one. When is God going to take away the chronic pain? I don't know. But what I do know is I know God, and I trust God, his sovereignty, his goodness, that he knows just how much I can handle And so I must believe, I must trust in him, have a simple faith, believe in his promises. Ken went over this again, you know this, just go through this, promises, trust in them. Sometimes I give that as homework for someone who's struggling. Because what do we typically focus on when we're depressed? Circumstances and self And part of the cure for depression is to believe that even if God might leave me in pain and suffering in the valley and the sorrow, he might leave me there for a season at the appropriate time, he's going to bring me out. And it may be this side of heaven, it may be heaven, but I believe you are a good God. I believe that you have a plan for me, God, and even though I don't feel like it, My heart is screaming to do something else. I will trust you, and I will do it your way, and I will respond in faith because you love me, and you sent your son to die for me. And so one of the most beautiful verses I like to give counselees is Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2 says, fixing our eyes on MD Anderson for the cure. Fixing our eyes on that husband, or those perfect grades, or... What? A cure. What does it say? Fixing our eyes on what? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father, so that we may not grow weary and what? Lose hope. You lose hope when you take your eyes off of God and off of Christ. And so sometimes to get out, you're you're spiraling down into that circle of depression. In fact, it looks like this. You're spiraling down. I got this from Jay Adams' book, uh, The Christian Counselor Manual. And you start spiraling down, and then you repent and you believe. And what happens? You begin taking your eyes off of your troubles and doing what? Putting them back on Christ, and you begin spiraling back up into that right relationship with Him. And so it looks something like this. This one is the sin. It starts, so I'm looking at it from the top down, that spiral. It starts with a problem. And I have a sinful response. And how do I feel? I feel worse. So to get out of that, what happens? I have another problem, and how do I deal with that? Well, the first one worked out. Let's try it again. Another sinful response. Whee! How does that make me feel? I feel even worse. And so I have another additional complicating problem, something that comes up. And now what do I do? I'm in a pattern, and eventually I am in depression. How do we get out of that? Well, you're already out here in this band of depression, so what do you do? You think of the additional complicating problem, and what do you do? It's solved by a biblical response. I repent, I believe, and then what's the third one? I obey. And I begin to work my way out of it, and eventually I'm working through this where I come to the original problem, and then what happens? I'm one step away from being where I started And it's solved by biblical response. You see how that works? So sometimes I have struggles. I have patterns that I've established. It helps for me to get this diagram out. And for those of you that want it, I have this on a handout that I sometimes give to people who come in for counseling. If you'd like it, I can make you a photocopy of it. And I go back and I trace words and actions and deeds and things that I did. And I'm looking for areas that I need to repent, where I need to believe, and where I need to obey. And I begin to take those steps to restore that relationship back with God. 1 Samuel 15, what does the prophet say? It's far better to obey than sacrifice. God wants us to obey more than our sacrifice. So we begin to work hard to change the actions, the heart, the behavior that have contributed to this downward spiral in small and manageable ways. Well, what is the golden guideline? Never put your hope in what God has not guaranteed. The golden guideline for depression. Never put your hope in what God has not guaranteed. And sometimes I'll walk people through little H hope and big H hope. If I have come to put my hope, my expectation on something that God did not promise. God, you promised me a happy marriage. God, you promised that my husband would love me. God, you promised that I would have, if I obeyed you, that I would be healthy. God, you, you see how, does God promise those things anywhere in the Bible? No. And if I put, turn a little h hope, and it, would it be wrong for you to want to have a loving husband or to be cured of cancer? No. You pray for those things. But if I turn a little h hope into a big h hope, which is where God says, I will do this, I promise, then what happens? when that thing doesn't happen, who do I get angry at? Don't let little H hopes become big H hopes because often when that happens, that ruling desire, it doesn't get met and that depression comes out in various ways. Well, just in conclusion, what would have happened if Cain would have repented? Have you ever thought about that? If he was seeking to please God Again, Cain did not obey Genesis 4:3. God lovingly disciplined him. He did not regard his sacrifice. Cain repents. I'm rewriting Scripture, bringing condemnation upon myself. Cain repents. He suffers consequences, but is restored to God. He obeys God by doing what? Taking away his grain offering and bringing what? He repents. He believes, and then he obeys God. I'm going to do the sacrifice right. And he goes to Abel, humbles himself, and does what? Abel, will you please give me the second? I guess Abel gave the first. Give me the second of your yearlings and let me offer it to the Lord. And then he goes and he offers that sacrifice to God. And what does God do to that sacrifice? He receives it. And what does that do with Cain's relationship to God? Restores him back. And how does Cain feel? How does that affect his mood? Does it make us happy when we obey God? Does it make us filled with joy? Yeah, in fact, I've got some verses there. James 1.25, don't be just a hearer, but be an effectual doer. And James 1.25 says, the effectual doer will be blessed in what he does. In Luke 11.28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Well, I am way over time. This is two messages in one. I hope you recognize depression is not simple. In fact, it's often very complex. But thankfully, we have Christ, his word, and the Holy Spirit to help us deal with our own hearts, with the hearts of others, with compassion in a God-pleasing way. So I just want to encourage you, if you're struggling with depression, come talk to us. I hope you get the sense we're not here to put more shame or guilt on you. And if you have someone in your family that you don't know how to help, we would love to give you resources to help you, to train you, to encourage you, that you would be a light for them. But I hope you recognize there is a way to biblically deal with depression. And even if it's depression from an organically caused illness, we can learn how to respond rightly to the situations and difficulties that God gives us. So I'm not going to pray. You pray in your heart. And if you have any questions, I'll be here afterwards and would love to answer those for you. Thank you so much. You are dismissed.